0: Chapter eighty three of the Wanderer or Female Difficulties This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney Chapter eighty three. Sir Jaspar arrived late the next morning, in wrath, he said, with his valet, who was not yet returned with the results of his inquiries from the inn. But before Juliet could express any uneasiness at the delay, the farmer and his wife, in evident confusion, though with professions of great respect, humbly besought that his honour would excuse their mentioning that they expected a relation to pass some days with them who would want the spare apartment. The baronet, however displeased, humorously answered that their relation was mightily welcome to pass his days with them provided he would be so kind as to go to the neighbouring public-house to take his dreams. But Juliet, much hurt, though with an air of dignity that made her host look more abashed than herself, desired that she might not incommode the family, and entreated Sir Jaspar to convey her to the nearest town. Sir Jaspar, rather to confound than to gratify the farmer, flung down a guinea which the man vainly sought to decline and then led the way to the carriage at the door of which stopping he said with an arch smile that he was not yet superannuated enough to take place of a fair female and desired that mrs betty would get in first shocked as juliet felt to find herself thus suspiciously situated the affront was soon absorbed in the dread of greater evil in the affright of pursuit, and the dismay of being exposed to improper pecuniary obligations. Not knowing the country, and not heeding the way that she went, she concluded that they were driving to some neighbouring village, in search of a new lodging, till she perceived that the carriage, which was drawn by four horses, was laboriously mounting a steep acclivity. Looking then around her, she found herself upon a vast plain nor house nor human being nor tree nor cattle within view surprised where are we she cried sir jaspar and whither are we going to a quick meeting with his valet he answered by a difficult road rarely passed because out of the common track they then quietly proceeded Juliet wrapped up in her own fears and affairs, making no comment upon the looks of enjoyment and contented taciturnity of her companion, till the groom, riding up to the window, said that the horses could go no further. Sir Jasper ordered them a feed, and inquired of Juliet whether she would choose, while they took a rest, to mount on foot to the summit of the ascent, and examine whether any horsemen were yet within sight. Glad to breathe a few minutes alone, she alighted and walked forward, though slowly, and with eyes bent upon the turf, till she was struck by the appearance of a wide ditch between a circular double bank, and perceived that she was approaching the scattered remains of some ancient building, vast, irregular, strange, and in ruins. Excited by sympathy in what seemed lonely and undone, rather than by curiosity, she now went on more willingly, though not less sadly, till she arrived at a stupendous assemblage of enormous stones, of which the magnitude demanded ocular demonstration to be entitled to credibility. Yet, though each of them, taken separately, might seem, from its astonishing height and breadth, there like some rock to have been placed from the beginning of things, And though not even the rudest sculpture denoted any visage of human art, still the whole was clearly no phenomenon of nature. The form, that might still be traced, of an antique structure, was evidently circular and artificial, and here and there, supported by gigantic posts, or pillars, immense slabs of flat stone were raised horizontally, that could only by manual art and labour have been elevated to such a height. Many were fallen, many with grim menace looked nodding, but many, still sustaining their upright direction, were so ponderous that they appear to have resisted all the wars of the elements in this high and bleak situation for ages. Struck with solemn wonder, Juliet for some time wandered amidst these massy ruins, grand and awful, though terrific rather than attractive. Mounting then upon a fragment of the pile, she saw that the view all around was in perfect local harmony with the wild edifice, or rather remains of an edifice into which she had pierced. She discerned, to a vast extent, a boundless plain that, like the ocean, seemed to have no term but the horizon, but which, also like the ocean, looked as desert as it was unlimited. Here and there flew a bustard or a weedier, all else seemed unpeopled air an uncultivated waste. In a state of mind so utterly deplorable as that of Juliet, this grand, uncouth monument of ancient days had a certain sad, indefinable attraction, more congenial to her distress, than all the polish, taste, and delicacy of modern skill. The beauties of Wilton seemed appendages of luxury, as well as of refinement, and appeared to require not only sentiment, but happiness for their complete enjoyment, while the nearly savage, however wonderful work of antiquity, in which she was now rambling, placed in this abandoned spot, far from the intercourse, or even view of mankind, with no prospect but of heath and sky, blunted for the moment her sensibility, by removing her wide from all the objects with which it was in contact, and insensibly calmed her spirits, though not by dissipating her reverie. Here, on the contrary, was room for meditation even to madness. Nothing distracted the sight— nothing broke in upon attention, nor buried the ideas. Thought, uninterrupted and uncontrolled, was master of the mind. Here, in deep and melancholy rumination, she remained till she was joined by the baronet, who toiled after his fair charge with an eager will, though with slack and discourteous feet. "'Do you divine, my beauteous wanderer?' he cried, what part of the globe you now brighten? Have you developed my stratagem to surprise you by a view of what, perhaps, you thought impossible, something curious and worthy of attention, though more antique than myself? Juliet tried, but vainly, to make a civil speech, and Sir Jaspar, after having vainly awaited it, went on, You picture yourself, perhaps, in the original temple of Gog and Magog, for what less than giants could have heaved stones such as these? But tis not so, and you who are pious must view this spot with bended knees and new ideas. Dart then around the liquid lustre of those eyes, so brightly mutable, so sweetly wild, and behold in each stony spectre, now staring you in the face, a petrified old druid. For learn, fair fugitive, you ramble now within the holy precincts of that rude wonder of other days and disgrace of modern geometry, Stonehenge. In almost any other frame of mind, Juliet, from various descriptions joined to the vicinity of Salisbury, would not have required any nomenclator to have told her where she was, but she could now make no reflections, save upon her own misery, and no combinations that were not relative to her own dangers. Sir Jasper apologized that he had not more roughly handled the farmer and his wife for their inhospitality, and frankly owned that it was not from the milkiness of his nature that he had been so docile, but from an ardent eagerness to visit Stonehenge with so fair a companion. Juliet, alarmed, demanded whether he had not taken the route by which they were to meet his valet. I have all my life, continued he, fostered, as the wish next my heart, the idea of being the object of some marvellous adventure. But fortune, more deaf if possible than blind, has hitherto famished all my elevated desires, by keeping me to the strict regimen of mere common life. Nevertheless to die like a brute, without leaving behind me one staring anecdote to be recounted by my successors to my little nephews and nieces. no." I cannot resolve upon so humdrum an exit. Late, therefore, last night, I counselled with my tiny friends, and the rogues told me that those whom adventures would not seek must seek adventures. They then suggested to me that to visit some romantic spot far removed from all living ken or a vast unfrequented plain where no leering eye with deriding scrutiny, no envious ear with prepared impertinence could peep or over here, where not even a bird could find a twig for the sole of his paw, there to encounter a lovely nymph, to dally with her in dulcet discourse, to feast upon the sweet notes of her melodious voice, while obedient fays and sprightly elves should accouter some chosen fragment with offerings appropriate to the place and the occasion. One of his grooms, here, demanded of him a private audience. He retired to some distance, and the heart-oppressed Juliet relieved her struggling feelings by weeping without control. While pondering upon her precarious destiny, she perceived, through an opening between two large stones, that Sir Jasper had placed himself upon an eminence where, apparently, by his gestures, he was engaged in an animated discourse. She concluded that the valet de chambre was arrived from the inn, but soon afterwards she was struck with motions so extraordinary, and by an appearance of a vivacity so extravagant, that she almost feared the imagination of the baronet had played him false, and was superseding his reason. She arose, and softly approaching, endeavoured to discover with whom he was conversing, but could discern no one, and was the more alarmed, though the nearer she advanced, the less he seemed to be an object of pity, his countenance being as bright with glee, as his hands and arms were busy with action. After some time she caught his eye, when, ceasing all gesticulation, he kissed his hand, with a motion that invited her reproach, and gallantly resigning his seat, begged her permission to take one by her side he was all smiling good humour and his features in defiance of his age expressed the most playful archness it is not he cried for nothing permit me to assure you that i have prowled over this druidical spot for though the druids have not been so debonair as to reanimate themselves to address me they have suffered a flat surface of their petrification to be covered over with a whole army of my little frequenters, who have dragged thither a parcel, and the Lord knows what besides that they have displayed, as you see, full before me, after which, with their usual familiarity, up they have been mounting to my shoulders, my throat, my ears, and my wig, and lulling all about me, in mockery of my remonstrances, saying, Hark ye, old sir, for they use very little ceremony with me, didst thou really fancy we would suffer the loveliest lily of the valley to droop without any gentle shade, under the blazing glare of this full light, while thy awkward clown of a valet trots to the inn for her bonnet? Or let her wait his plodding return, for what other drapery her fair form may require? Or permit her to be famished in the open air, whilst thou art hopping and hobbling, and hobbling, and hobbling and hopping, about these ruins?' which thou art so fast ossifying to resemble. No, old sir, look what our wants have brought hither for her. Look, but touch nothing for thy life, and her own lily hands alone must develop our fairy gifts. Juliet, who already had observed, upon the nearest flat stone, a large band-box, and a square new trunk, placed as supporters to an elegant Japan basket, in which were arranged various refreshments, could not, however disconcerted by the attentions that she knew not how to acknowledge, prevail upon herself to damp the exaltation of his spirits by resisting his entreaty, that she would herself lift up the lid of the trunk and open the bandbox. The first of these machines presented to her sight a complete small assortment of the finest linen, the second contained a white chip bonnet of the most beautiful texture. This last excited a transient feeling of pleasure in offering some shade for her face, now exposed to every eye. She looked at it, wistfully, a few minutes, anticipating its umbrageous succour, yet irresolute, and fearing to give encouragement to the too evident admiration of the Baronet. Her deliberation, nevertheless, seconded by her wishes, was in his favour. She passed over, in her mind, that he knew her origin, and high natural, however disputed expectations, and that with all his gallantry he was not only aged and sickly, but a gentleman in manners and sentiment, as much as in birth and rank of life. He could not mean her dishonour and to show, since thus cast into his hands, and loaded with obligations of long-standing, as well as recent, a voluntary confidence in his character and intentions, might, happily, from mingling a sense of honour with a sense of shame, turn aside what was wrong in his regard, and give pride and pleasure to a nobler attachment, that might fix him her solid and disinterested friend for life. Decided by this view of things, she thankfully consented to receive his offerings, upon condition that he would permit her to consider him, as the banker of Lord Melbury and of Lady Aurora Granville. Enchanted by her acceptance, and enraptured by its manner, the first sensation of the melted baronet was to cast himself at her feet, but the movement was checked by certain aches and pains while the necessity of picking up one of his crutches, which, in his transport, had fallen from his hands, mournfully called him back from his gallantry to his infirmities. At this moment an— Aha! here's the demoiselle! here she is, Faith!—suddenly presented before them Riley, mounted upon a fragment of the pile, to take a view around him. Starting, and in dread of some new horror, Juliet looked at him aghast. While clapping his hands, and turbulently approaching her, he exclaimed, Yes, here she is, in propria persona. I was afraid that she had slipped through our fingers again. Monsieur le cher Epoux will have a pretty tight job of it to get her into conjugal trammels. He will, Faith. To the other, and yet more horrible, sensations of Juliette, this speech added a depth of shame nearly overpowering from the implied obloquy hanging upon the character of a wife eloping from her husband presently however all within was changed reinvigorated new-strung and joy irresistibly beamed from her eyes and hope glowed upon her cheeks as Riley related that before he had left the inn upon the road he had himself seen the new monsieur, with poor Surly, who had been seized as an accomplice, packed off together for the sea-coast, whence they were both, with all speed, to be embarked for their own dear country. The baronet waved his hand, in act of congratulation to Juliet, but forbore speaking, and Riley went on. "'They made confounded wry faces and grimaces, both of them. I never saw a grimmer couple.' They amused me mightily, they did faith. But I can't compliment you, demoiselle, upon your choice of a loving partner. He has as hang-dog a physiognomy as a Bow Street prowler might wish to light upon a summer's day. A most fiend-like aspect, I confess. I don't well make out when you took to him for, demoiselle. His cupid's arrows must have been handsomely tipped with gold, to blind you to all that brass of his brow and his port. Sir Jaspar distressed for Juliet, and much annoyed by this interruption, however happy in the intelligence to which it was the vehicle, inquired what chance had brought Mr. Riley to Stonehenge. The chance, he answered, that generally ruled his actions, namely, his own will and pleasure. He had found out, in his prowls about Salisbury, that Sir Jaspar was to be followed to Stonehenge by a dainty repast, and— deeming his news well worth a bumper to the loving sea voyagers, he had borrowed a horse of one of Master Baronet's grooms, to take his share in the feast. The Baronet, at this hint, instantly, and with scrupulous politeness, did the honors of his stores, though he was ready to gnash his teeth with ire, at so mundane an appropriation of his fairy purposes. What a rare hand you are, Demoiselle, cried Riley, at hocus-pocus work. Who the deuce, with that heb-face of yours, could have thought of your being a married woman? Why, when I saw you at the old Bangham's concert at Brighthelmstone, I should have taken you for boarding-school, miss. But you metamorphose yourself about so, one does not know which way to look for you. Ovid was a mere fool to you. His nymphs turned into trees, and rivers, and flowers, and beasts, and fishes, make such a staring chaos of lies that one reads them without a ray of reference to truth, like the tales of the Genji or of Old Mother Goose. He makes such a comical hodgepodge of animal, vegetable, and mineral choppings and changes that we should shout over them as our brats do at a puppet-show when old Nick teaches Punchinello the devil's dance down to hell or pummels his wife to a mummy, if it were not for the sly rogues tickling one's ears so cajolingly with the jingle of meter. But Demoiselle here scorns all that namby-pamby work. Sir Jasper tried vainly to call him to order. The embarrassment of Juliet operated but as a stimulus to his caustic humour. I have met with nothing like her, Master Baronet, he continued, all the globe over. Neither juggler nor conjurer is a match for her. She can make herself as ugly as a witch and as handsome as an angel. She'll answer what one only murmurs in a whisper. And she won't hear a word, when one bawls as loud as a speaking trumpet. Now she turns herself into a vagrant, not worth sixpence, and now into a fine player and singer that ravishes all ears, and might make, if it suited her fancy, a thousand pounds at her benefit; and now again, as you see, you can't tell whether she's a housemaid or a country girl, yet a devilish fine creature, faith, as fine a creature as ever I beheld, when she's in that humour. Look, but what a beautiful head of hair she's displaying to us now; it becomes her mightily; but I won't swear that she does not change it, in a minute or two, for a skull cap. She's a droll girl, faith, I like her prodigiously.' Utterly disconcerted, Juliet, expressively bowing to the Baronet, lifted up the lid of the bandbox, and, encircling her head in his bonnet, begged his permission to reseat herself in the chaise. Charmed with the prospect of another tete-a-tete, Sir Jasper, with alacrity, accompanied her to the carriage, leaving Riley to enjoy, at his leisure, the cynical satisfaction of having worried a timid deer from the field. Still, however, Juliet, while uncertain whether the embarkation might not be eluded, desired to adhere to her plan of privacy and obscurity and the baronet would not struggle against a resolution from which he hoped to reap the fruit of lengthened intercourse. Pleased and willingly, therefore, he told his postilion to drive across the plain to, whence they proceeded post to Blandford. Great was the relief afforded to the feelings of Juliet, by a removal so expeditious from the immediate vicinity of the scene of her sufferings which she considered it, at the same time, to be a circumstance to obviate all necessity, and, consequently, all propriety of further attendance from the baronet. Here, therefore, to his utter dismay, with firmness, though with the gentlest acknowledgments, she begged that they might separate. Cruelly disappointed, Sir Jasper warmly remonstrated against the danger of her being left alone, But the possible hazards which might be annexed to acting right, could not deter her from the certain evil of acting wrong. Her greatest repugnance was that of being again forced to accept pecuniary aid. Yet that which, however disagreeable, might be refunded, was at least preferable to the increase and continuance of obligations, which, besides their perilous tendency, could never be repaid." Already, upon opening the bandbox, she had seen a well-furnished purse, and though her first movement had prompted its rejection, the decision of necessity was that of acceptance. When Sir Jasper found it utterly impossible to prevail with his fair companion still to bear that title, he expostulated against leaving her, at least in a public town, and she was not sorry to accept his offer of conveying her to some neighbouring village. It was still daylight when they arrived within the picturesque view of a villa which Juliet, upon inquiry, heard was Milton Abbey. She soon discovered that the scheme of the baronet, to lengthen their sojourn with each other, was to carry her to see the house, but this she absolutely refused and her seriousness compelled him to drive to a neighboring cottage, where she had the good fortune to meet with a clean elderly woman who was able to accommodate her with a small chamber. Here, not without sincere concern, she saw the reluctance, even to sadness, with which her old admirer felt himself forced to leave his too lovely young friend, and what she owed to him was so important, so momentous. That she parted from him herself with real regret, and with expressions of the most lively esteem and regard. End of chapter eighty three. Recording by Roxana Nazari.